This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Well, recently, I had the distinct pleasure of attending for the first time in my life the Parliament of World Religions. A little history. In 1893, the first Parliament of World Religions took place in Chicago at the World's Fair. And it was such a success, they decided to do it again in 1993. Yeah, it took them 100 years, uh, probably, you know, committee problems, too many committees, too many regulations. Regardless, uh, the the Parliament of World Religions started becoming a semi-regular thing, convening every four years, for the most part, in different cities around the world. Uh, This last one in early November convened in Toronto, and I enjoyed myself very much. I met several people, and as you can probably guess, at a place like that, one of the things I was thinking of, who could I have on Common Threads? Well, I found one particular woman who was quite fascinating. You have to understand that part of the Parliament is uh, plenary sessions and and uh, breakout sessions, etc. But another part of it is if you've ever been to a trade show where uh, you go to uh, some, some convention hall and you have a very large room and it's filled with booths of different vendors, that's kind of how the, the bottom floor of the Toronto Convention Center was uh, for the Parliament. So you, you walk around, and this is a very large room, and you have just about every kind of religion and spiritual movement that you can think of, and they all have booths, and you can engage with people, you can take free literature, you can do a variety of things down there. Well, I was uh, walking around the hall, and I come across a booth that was filled with women who are Catholic priests. Now, naturally, that... uh, that cocked my eyebrow a bit, I must say. So I engaged with uh, these women, and this is what they claim to be, Roman Catholic priests, fully ordained, uh, and yet all women. So one woman that I spoke to in particular was Mary Eileen Collingwood, and she has agreed to come on our show and tell us just, just exactly how a woman can become a Roman Catholic priest. A little bit about Mary Eileen. She's a wife, mother, grandmother, and educator who earned her M.A. in theology from St. Mary Seminary and Graduate School of Theology in Ohio. She's taught theology on the secondary and college levels, served as a pastoral minister in parishes, and as director of a diocesan office. She currently is a faculty member for Global Ministries University and the People's Catholic Seminary. Mary Eileen was ordained a priest in 2014 and ordained a bishop in apostolic succession in 2015. She serves as bishop for the Association of Roman Catholic Women Priests 
and is a member of the presiding team at the Community of St. Bridget, an inclusive Catholic community in Brecksville, Ohio. So we welcome to Common Threads, Mary Eileen Collingwood. Hello, Mary Eileen. Hello, thank you. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for having me. Certainly. Uh, I can only imagine you answer this question, you're posed this question many, many times uh, from people of a variety of religious backgrounds. How can a woman be a Catholic priest when all we hear from the Vatican, all we have ever heard from the Vatican is, no, you can't. They're open to the possibility of married priests, and certainly there are married male priests. So that's not impossible. But uh, uh, I've, I've heard it said from uh, theologians or clergy that it is as much impossible for a woman to become a Catholic priest as it is for a man to have a baby. So, so tell us just exactly how you became a priest and how you validate that. Well, thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, <clears throat> the, the way a woman can become a priest is to um, do some research, find the association that I belong to, or the uh, Roman Catholic Women Priest Movement that is international, and do a little history, uh, study of history, and um, um, discover that in 2002, there were seven women in uh, <clears throat> Germany that uh, were ordained Catholic priests by bishops in good standing with um, the Roman Catholic Roman, uh, Roman Catholic Vatican um, uh, authority. Okay, so this, these particular bishops came to um, this uh, boat that was floating down the Danube River, and these women were on it. And they were ordained by these men in good standing with Rome, and uh, so their particular ordinations were valid um, because a bishop in good standing ordained them. However, they are illicit due to the fact that it goes against the Church's canon law. Okay, so uh, we broke an unjust law, but yet we were validly ordained by a bishop in good standing with Rome. So we carry that with us. Uh, we know that the, um, the Church, the official Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, uh, does not uh, consider our ordinations listed according to their man-made laws. This is not a God law here. It's a man-made law that can be changed. And so we broke that unjust law, um, and we became priests, validly ordained by these bishops in good standing, because it's the bishop that confers ordination. And if they are in good standing, then they confer it. And this is what happened to these seven women. So since then, uh, the following year, in 2003, um, one of the bishops contacted um, two of the women that were ordained and invited them to be ordained a bishop so that he no longer had to go around in secrecy ordaining that it could just take off and the women could, be, could go on and develop um, their presence within the Church. And so in 2003, two of the women 
were ordained bishops. And that is the beginning of the story. So from those seven on the Danube River in 2002 till today in 2018, we have over 270 ordained women uh, in this movement to reform the Roman Catholic Church. There's a lot there that I want to get to. First of okay. all, first of all, now I have had this explained to me before, but but not in a way that didn't make my head hurt. Tell us the difference, and please talk to me like I'm four. Tell okay. us the difference between illicit and invalid. The validity comes through the power, the um, the legality, the the licitness comes through a law. All right, so the, so you have the power to do it, and then you have, are you following the law? So the person who had the power to confer ordination <clears throat> did it. The person that was ordained was ordained illicitly in that they did not follow the church law. So the power is granted. It cannot be ungranted but we don't abide by the law. Now, let's, let's just look at it this way. There are laws in people's countries that their conscience believes they cannot follow because it's not a just law. So, too, we as women priests did not follow the canon law of the Church, the man-made law. Women had no voice in making those laws at all. We believe they are totally unjust, and so we broke away from the institutional church by um, being ordained because we did not follow that law. Okay, that my head feels just fine, and I think I get it. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> um, there, the way you told the story, there must be some significance of this ordination, the original ordination, happening on a boat in the Danube River. Am That's I correct? correct? Yes. The reason it was, um, it was held on a boat is because that is international water. So no one had jurisdiction over there in Germany over what was going on on that boat. So there was no... Um, because, you know, over in Europe, they have uh, tax codes that... Um, allow uh, clergy to receive tax money from the um, the governments. We don't have that here in the United States, but they they do have that system in Europe. And so they did not want to be ordained in an area where um, some public official could come in and stop the ordination. So that is the reason why Christine Meyer Lumitzberger. Um, the woman that spearheaded this movement um, uh, mortgaged her house so that she could pay for the rental of that boat. And that's where um, the bishops came, that's where the seven women as ordinands came, and that's where they were ordained. And how were you able to find, uh, or rather, these these original women, uh, mm-hmm. how were they able mm-hmm. to find a bishop who would do this? Or did you, didn't, well, you use the word, uh, didn't you use the word bishops, plural? Yes, I did. There were two of them that came for that ordination. Um, 
Here's how it happened. A former Benedictine sister from Austria named Christine Meyer Lumensberger had this vision and this desire and this, um, this vision that women should be ordained in the Roman Catholic Church. She, in her ministries and what she had been involved in, gathered and talked um, with women about whether or not they would be interested in pursuing that. So she had upwards of, you know, over a dozen people. She put together, through her um, um, understanding, her studies, uh, her expertise, she put together kind of like a seminary education for them. They went to different places, and they put this seminary experience together so they could prepare to be priests through study and prayer. And um, that went on, say, from the um, mid-1990s on, and come, uh, people were asking her, well, what are you going to do once you're prepared? There's nobody to ordain you. And she said, if the Spirit is leading me through this preparation with these women, I am confident that at the time that we are ready, there will be a bishop ready to ordain us. So the word spread, okay? And sure enough, in 2002, um, didn't three bishops make their way to her in communication and said that they would be very happy to ordain and that she should, you know, figure it all out how to do it and that they would be there. Unfortunately, one bishop did not get there, but two of them did. And so they ordained the seven women that showed up on the Danube River on that boat. Uh, and that's how we got... Um, uh, the uh, bishops that were willing to ordain, and that's how they got ordained. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Mary Eileen Collingwood, a wife, mother, grandmother, educator, and Roman Catholic priest. Mary Eileen, were there any uh, consequences for those bishops who were involved in the ordination? Uh, actually, no, because they, they, um, they were not, they were not um, curtailed in any way. The women who were ordained received excommunication papers from the Vatican, uh, excommunicating them for not following church law. So um, they are kind of persona non grata to um, the Catholic Church in that respect. But keep in mind, the power of ordination was conferred, so they do not accept the excommunication, nor do I accept any excommunication that the Vatican would impose on us because we feel that we are following uh, our consciences in not following an unjust law. And that's fascinating that the bishops... uh are they still in good standing? Are they still, is this still their day job? Uh, as far as I know, yes. In fact, we don't mention the names because the bishop that ordained our two bishops could have gotten in a lot of trouble for doing that. And we honor his privacy 
until after his death. <clears throat> and that's when that can be revealed, but not now. When you say that uh, there, these uh, originally these original women were were educated uh, to become priests, I'm just curious. Do you know? Can a woman receive the same education as a priest? Let's say someone who uh, does not wish to become a priest, but someone who simply wishes to learn. Are there any any courses in seminary that would be considered off-limits for women? Well, to best answer that, um, I have to give my personal story about that. Um, I went through the diocesan seminary here in Cleveland, Ohio, and received my master's in the diocesan seminary. I studied right along every seminarian in the graduate school of theology, okay? Um, After I received my um, degree, uh, a new bishop came in and did not like the fact that Catholic women were studying alongside um, priests, uh, those, you know, seminarians to become priests, and um, he, um, he, for, he, he put limits on what courses, from then on, what courses women could be in the classroom with the priests. He put a limit on any Catholic woman uh, could not receive the Masters of Divinity, um, but that a Lutheran woman or an Episcopalian woman uh, they would allow that, but not a Roman Catholic woman could not get that degree. And the reason for that is that he believed that women were coming into the seminary to prepare for Catholic priesthood, and he did not want to be a part of that. That's fascinating. So, uh, uh, I yes. So when you were taking those courses, did you yeah. have? Did you feel you had the calling to be a priest at that time? No, I did not um, pursue that education for priesthood at the time. I pursued it for um, ministry, professional ministry within uh, the Catholic diocese here. Um, I um, became a director of a diocesan office after that. I taught in um, um, schools and universities. I worked in parish work, and I believe that in order for me to um, be a credible minister, I had to receive that degree. So that's why I pursued that degree. Did you get it? Did you have, you now have an MDiv? No, I received a Master's of Theology because the MDiv, um, requ- uh, the, how shall I put it, the program uh, for the MDiv involved a lot of pastoral studies in ministry. I had already received that under a different venue. Um, the Diocese of Cleveland at the time uh, were preparing lay men and women for um, parish ministry, and you had to have a certification for that parish ministry. So with the classes that I took on a graduate level to obtain that certification, actually put me over the number of course uh, courses that I had um, that would be, have been required for an MDiv. So 
I was looking at it very practically. You know, I, I have a large family. I didn't need to um, tack on more um, continuing ed um, <laughs> bills uh, for myself. So because I got that certification in pastoral ministry and it actually um, was much more extensive than um, any pastoral ministry studies that would have been given under the MDiv, I um, I was satisfied with that certification, and I believed the Master's in Theology would um, put me where I needed to be. And that's why I pursued it in that vein. There was uh, other women who went with the MDiv, and that's fine, too. I didn't believe that um, I needed the MDiv. Uh, I would be replicating many of my courses by by going for that degree. You just mentioned something in answering the question about having a large family. Uh, yes. Your, your bio indicates you are a, a wife, mother, and grandmother. Uh, and so, obviously, to be a Catholic priest in your community, celibacy is not a requirement. Is that correct? Um, to be a, a woman uh, priest in, in um, this movement, absolutely not. Um, I don't believe that um, anybody should be curtailed uh, from having a family and being in ministry and being a priest in ministry. So that is one part of the reform of the Catholic Church that needs to take place, absolutely. You know, we, we go out, we step out as prophetic witnesses to a life that the Church is called to lead, and we are part of that movement to get it there. Um, it may not happen in my lifetime. Uh, it may happen in my children or grandchildren's lifetime. That would be wonderful. But if we don't do this now, um, it will take much longer. This is a big, huge institution. It's the biggest Christ, uh, uh, segment of Christianity that has not um, opened its doors to women in ordained ministry. So we feel that this is very important, that we have to live the inclusive call to priesthood um, now so that um, we can witness to what the the vision is for ordained priesthood. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it is like to be a priest and maintain your family life. So, for instance, uh, how many hours a week do you dedicate to actual pastoral work, and and how much do you dedicate to your family? Are you still in the process of raising children, or are they all adults now? All my children are adults. They reign in age from uh, 24 to 39. I have seven children. Um, I have four grandchildren. Um, for my work uh, that I do now in ministry, I spend at least eight hours a day uh, in pastoral or ministerial work. It's like a full-time job, okay? Now, I will say that I am in a u unique position because I don't have to work. There are other people in this movement, other women and men, in this movement that still have to maintain uh, a day job or whatever it requires. And they do that, and they minister around that time and even within that time uh, if the uh, occasion, um, you know, provides, that, uh, is provided for them. So 
um, we are we are essentially working priests. Okay, like I said, I am in a unique position, and there are others like me, but not a whole lot that um, don't have to depend on an income uh, to survive. Okay, so. Um, I do spend at least eight hours a day in a ministerial uh, research, writing, um, uh, pastoral visits, preparations for liturgies, um, ecumenical um, meetings, um, uh, all that, you know, some of the administration within our association I help out with. So it is a full-time job for me. And, and finally, uh, we're about down to the wire, but... Uh, when I met you and your colleagues at the Parliament, I asked about any sort of honorific, a- any sort of title, and you seem to eschew that. Uh, you don't wish to be called Mother, Reverend, Bishop. It, it, is is that correct? Uh, well, for me personally, I believe that the word Reverend comes from the word revered, and I don't believe that I'm any more revered than anybody else. I think God made us all equal, and um, we are called to, um, we are all called to some sort of priestly ministry. So I believe as I stand in one, as one with others equally, and when we have liturgy together, I am the prayer leader as an ordained person. However, I share the prayers with everyone. Um, if I'm wearing a stole when I come in, I take the stole off, put it on the altar, and say, I stand with you equally together. So um, I do not believe in a hierarchical status. I do believe that people are called to serve in particular capacities in different ways because the people of God need that type of leadership, and I'm glad to step in and do that. Um, they elected me a bishop as bishop. Uh, I'm a bishop because it's necessary to be a bishop. Uh, we have to ordain, and so I have the power to confer ordination on people. That's the reason I'm a bishop. I'm not a bishop so that people can call me the most reverend or anything else. I don't believe that there should be a hierarchical status. Everybody's called to a particular role in um, living out their Catholic Christianity, and um, I believe that we have to respect each other that way. And so okay. I have the responsibility as prayer leader and conferring ordination. I appreciate that. Mary Eileen, we're, we're down to the wire, as I said, uh, for this uh, episode of Common Threads, but uh, there's much more conversation to be had, so I'm hoping you'll join us next week and we can continue. I'd be happy to. Thank you. You're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today, Mary Eileen Collingwood, a Roman Catholic priest, part of the community of St. Bridget, and inclusive Catholic community in Brecksville, Ohio. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. 
Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Hello, I'm Fred Stella. President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Mary Eileen Collingwood. She is an ordained Roman Catholic priest. And if you didn't hear last week's episode, we'll tell you a little bit just about how exactly she happened to become a Roman Catholic priest. She, Catholic priest, words that you don't normally hear together. Let, let me tell you a little bit about Mary Eileen Collingwood. She is a wife, mother, grandmother, and educator who earned her M.A. in theology from St. Mary's Seminary and Graduate School of Theology in Ohio. She's taught theology on the secondary and college levels, served as a pastoral minister in parishes, and as director of a diocesan office. She currently is a faculty member for Global Ministries University and the People's Catholic Seminary. Mary Eileen was ordained a priest in 2014 and ordained a bishop in apostolic succession in 2015. She serves as bishop for the Association of Roman Catholic Women Priests and is a member of the presiding team at the Community of St. Bridget, an inclusive Catholic community in Brecksville, Ohio. Please welcome once again Mary Eileen Cullingwin. Hello, Mary Good Eileen. Good to be here. Good to be here. Yes, nice to have you back. Um, for for anyone who may have missed last week, I think it's important. Uh, all we have to do is um, have you mention once again just exactly how you became a Roman Catholic priest, because I'm sure that's a question on everyone's mind who didn't hear last week. So if you would, tell us about the, about the original priests who were ordained. Uh, in Germany. Okay, there were seven women in Germany ordained in 2002 um, on the Danube River in international waters so that no jurisdiction could stop the ordination. There were um, a couple of bishops that agreed to ordain them as long as it was secretly done because they did not want to be um, um, disciplined by the Vatican. So um, they ordained the women, and a year later, um, one of those bishops contacted two of the women and uh, invited them to be ordained bishops so that um, no other male bishop would be put in a situation where their identity um, or their um, their good standing with uh, Rome would be um, jeopardized. So... Um, Two women were ordained in 2003 as bishops, and from then on, the women's priest movement um, went from seven to today, uh, 270 worldwide at this point. 
That is amazing. That's a, a number I don't think you mentioned last week. So that's that. That is uh, some growth. Um, in your bio, there are several organizations that uh, you are connected with, and we we didn't talk about that last week. So, first of all, Global Ministries University. What is that? Um, Global Ministries University is an online university accredited through um, California for online universities, and um, they uh, open up uh, uh, programs of study for um, uh, many, many different um, Christian denominations. And I was asked to um, teach uh, on the master's level uh, in um, homiletics. So um, I put together a um, program, and with uh, together with the People's Catholic Seminary, um, it goes hand in hand here. The People's Catholic Seminary is a or a, is a school of um, study that is open for certification status. It, it is not an accredited university. So, for example, if um, women would like to uh, go for uh, continuing uh, education in certain fields, especially in women's studies, um, then they would take these courses for their continuing education. Uh, Many of the women priests who believe that they need to uh, have some of these courses that are offered through People's Catholic Seminary be part of their um, preparation for priesthood will also... um, engage in some of these courses, and when they're finished, they get a certification, uh, certification of uh, completion. So uh, together with my teaching with the People's Catholic Seminary, uh, Eucharist course or homiletics course, um, Global Ministries say to us, if those students take this course and then add on this project, we can... Um, we can um, put them into a master's course, and um, indeed, we through People's Catholic Seminary uh, and people engaging in that study, they can receive a master's in pastoral ministry through Global Ministry. So what we're saying is the People's Catholic Seminary and Global Ministries work hand-in-hand with each other to provide that master's degree in pastoral uh, ministry. Global Ministries actually issues the degree, grants the degree, but the study happens within People's Catholic Seminary. Now, you mentioned your academic uh, uh, training last week, and Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone could call it anything but rigorous. Uh, it, it, mm-hmm. you, you have impressive academic credentials. Would you say that uh, the rule of thumb is that uh, becoming ordained uh, in your association, in your community, um, follows as as rigorous a training as, say, uh, any man who went through seminary training? Um. I think that has to be um, explained. Um, There are many women that come uh, to um, this movement in wanting, seeking ordination, that do have master's degrees or above in um, theology, in uh, religious studies, 
in biblical scholarship, all kinds of things. And then there are women that never got the degree, but they can prove that they've had the coursework. And um, we believe in equivalencies, okay? And uh, that means that when a woman uh, comes uh, to us with the desire to be ordained, um, we have to check out all her credentials and uh, all her experiences and um, her ministerial work and the fact that um, everyone, especially women, and I'm going to, I'm going to make this a, a big thing about especially women because women have been subjugated in so many different areas for so many centuries that they have to they have to have developed a certain theology they live by and what works for them okay and everyone has it coming in they have a, a personal theology. We like to get to know what that theology is. We like to know what track they're on, what they're thinking, why they're thinking it, how it came to be. And with all of that information, then, we develop a program for them to um, complete their education or their preparation of studies. So a lot, a lot of times it is individually designed for each applicant. So, yes, if they want to go on and get a master's degree, they can. We believe in lifelong education. Nobody is totally prepared at any one point to embark on ministry. There are certain levels of uh, understanding that, you know, you need at least this or this or whatever, but we know that uh, to be constantly on the um, projectile of continuing to engage in studies is a, a good thing. And especially in this last century, we have so many new things coming out in women theologians and women's thought globally, um, feminist theology, liberation theology, majoristic theology, um, all kinds of mystical theology, all these things that we really want these women to study uh, the current contemporary theologies so that they are they gather the skills and the knowledge needed to minister in the twenty first century and also you are bishop for the Association of Roman Catholic Women Priests. And I think a lot of people, when when they think of a bishop and a bishop's responsibility, they think of a geographical location, right? The the bishop of the Detroit, Michigan area, the bishop of the Grand Rapids area, the the bishop of Cleveland, Ohio. Your bishopric, if I can call it that, is is not geographical. Am I correct? You are correct. It's international. Um, our association is international. The women priest movement, all uh, overall, is an international movement. Um, in the within the association, it's a branch of the movement. We do not um, we do not engage in hierarchical um, leadership. We engage in circular leadership. Uh, we do not engage in regional territories. We we can be called. Um, as quickly to California, uh, and, and I'm in Ohio, as I could be called to uh, Europe. Um, 
it doesn't happen often, but I'm just saying it, it can happen that way. Um, we, if, we, if we set up regions or dioceses, that means, you know, your bishop is the top person in power. Uh, we don't operate that way, okay? It's uh, equal. We are equal with the people that come um, to us. Uh, we are equal with our uh, local communities. Um, we don't act like we have power. In fact, um, the local communities that women priests uh, um, engage with um, are member-led. We are there to serve them. We are not there to direct them. Uh, we are there to serve them. And so uh, where their needs are, if we can uh, satisfy that and grow with them, uh, then we'll do that. So um, we, I am not the bishop over an area. I am the bishop serving my association um, to ordain women and men and to um, be um, spiritual mentors to those who are ordained. Uh, that's my role and purpose of being a bishop. It's not to have the last word on anything. It's to um, perform those particular roles. So if you were to look at the paradigm for uh, the bishop in the Bible and compare it to what, what is going on today, both in the Vatican-controlled Catholic Church and your community, would you say that your model more represents the biblical view of the bishop, or would you say that that actually, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the idea of bishop of St. Paul and St. Peter, would you say that uh, they really set the ground for what is going on today in the Vatican? Um, but but you might actually say, no, ours is a little bit more enlightened. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you follow what you believe is in the New Testament, or do you think it, what you're doing is an improvement over what's going on in the New Testament? Well, um, there's a couple of nuances here that probably have to be clarified. Um, I, I don't. We don't believe in hierarchical structures. Okay, so um, so you have the bishop, you have the uh, archbishop, you have the uh, monsignor, you have the priest, you have the deacon. You know, we ordain in that model because it's a necessity. It's a necessity to be ordained in that model right now, where the Roman Catholic Church stands today, because that is the model they operate from. So if we want to get into that model uh, as far as apostolic succession and ordinations, that's a necessity that we have bishops to do that, okay? That's a necessity that you become a deacon before you're ordained a priest. Uh, the role of Monsignor um, was just an accoutrement in the, in the, uh, um, the lineup of hierarchical anything. So uh, we just don't even think about that, <laughs> and and then um, do, you, do you know why? Do you know why uh, why 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 God created uh, monsignors? Why is that? So it, to prove that He could still create ex nihilo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but but so anyway, uh, go on, uh, go on, please. Yeah. Um, 
so that's that so how do we how do we compare to that like i said i keep underscoring the word necessity it's a necessity that we are a bishop now i am a bishop now it's a necessity that we use that role for that purpose of ordaining so that we can continue to get women and men out there um and and ministering in inclusive Catholic communities where all are equal and welcome to the table. Our table is open, all are welcome. And um, we, that is where we stand with the uh, early Christian communities, okay? And we believe in that. We believe in inclusive love, inclusive um, uh, g- prayer gatherings, liturgical gatherings, um, it is extremely important that we get back to the root of Christianity that way, and so that's where our our um, our energy is. So, so vision. you you are saying that you believe that your model is closer to that uh, which was observed in the New Testament. Yes. By the way, let me just break in very briefly to mention that uh, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella. Mary Eileen Collingwood is my guest. She is a part of the community of St. Bridget and Inclusive Catholic Community in Brecksville, Ohio. Um, so tell us now about St. Bridget's. What is it and, and how does it function? Well, the community of St. Bridget, it's, it's an inclusive Catholic community where all are welcome. Um, we um, support Catholic women who have been called to the priesthood by God and their communities. Um, we believe and support that the Spirit is leading women to claim their rightful place in the Catholic Church um, through ordination and equal access to decision-making roles in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, We embrace a renewed priestly ministry uh, within an inclusive community. All are welcome to worship in a spirit of justice and equality at our open table. We welcome all people, no matter their social, their educational, political, or economic status, whether they're single married or widowed, no matter their gender, sexual orientation, age, race, national origin or religion, they are invited to join us. We offer um, the Liturgy of the Eucharist every Saturday at 5. We um, also offer liturgies for major feast days such as Christmas, um, uh, Easter, etc., and they are celebrated as a community. Um, we encourage home liturgies um, and make them available for those who request them. We provide all sacramental celebrations, including weddings and funerals. And um, we belong to um, several community outreach, um, social um, action um, endeavors within the um the the, um, Cleveland area here, and um, we're growing. Uh, We started off in uh, 2013 with um, a gathering once a month, and then after I was ordained a priest in 2014, we um, provided those liturgical gatherings weekly, and it's been weekly ever since, and um, 
We started out with, you know, a handful of people that come, and um, we have been gaining members. But um, you have to understand here that um, we're not a a bricks-and-mortar church. Uh, We will rent space from another church. We are located in the um, Brexville United Church of Christ, who rents space to us. We're very grateful for that. And that's where um, we share their sanctuary and their meeting rooms, et cetera. And um, they've been made a pretty much a home for us there with them. Um, and that is true with the United Church of Christ. They welcome everybody. And so do we. So we had the same philosophy there. It matched and it was good. So we've been there ever since. And um, we know that when people come to our liturgical gatherings, they too are taking a risk. They are stepping out of the rules of the church, and that can be very risky and dangerous and scary. So we don't expect people to come every week. Um, Sometimes they can't. They're still involved in a parish, uh, a traditional parish where they have um, obligations or whatever, but they do come. That We have some faithful members that do come every week, and um, it's because they've reached an age or a place in their life where uh, they're making the rules according to their conscience, and they believe that what we're doing is what needs to happen. And that takes a lot of courage. So every week um, I always thank them for their spirit uh, to worship in a community that uh, is about justice and equality. So, and, um, you yes. you would uh, you would assume then that if someone goes to your uh, your liturgy yes. and then talks to a mainstream Catholic priest, that mm-hmm. priest would say that you are not meeting your Sunday obligation by going that's to correct. St. Bridget's. Yes, mm-hmm. that's correct. In fact, after I was ordained in 2014, the bishop sent a notice, the the Roman Catholic traditional bishop sent a notice to all the parishes and and Catholic institutions in the diocese stating that if they know of anybody who would attempt to go to our liturgies or even attempt to uh, be... um, uh, um, present at any ordination that would be going on in the area in within the woman priest movement that they would be excommunicated automatically so um we were under um kind of a um kind of a situation here in cleveland where um, we got a very conservative bishop in for over a decade and um he was very um concerned about a lot of uh, unorthodox things that might have been going on and um, it came down very hard on the priests and the pastors and and everything. So it was difficult for me to even attend a funeral of one of my good friends uh, that was in the Catholic Church um, without raising some eyebrows that I was there, okay? (laughs) So you know, we we have to step out as prophets, and, you know, we don't want to... Um, it's not about protesting 
uh, in front of the uh, cathedral of the traditional Catholic, um, you know, seat in the diocese. It's not about protesting that way. It's about living what we're called to live in prophetic witness. So they know we're here. Some of the priests, you know, give a kindly nod to me, and others pretend they can't see me. And because I did work uh, in the diocese and in parishes, and I graduated from the diocesan seminary, it's not like I'm not known. <laughs> and so they'd, some of them get nervous when they see me coming, and others are just, you know, very nice to see it, you know, and how's it going, that kind of stuff. So it's nice. But there, there's a cost to pay for being this type of a prophet today. There's a cost to pay. And before I even was ordained a deacon, my husband and I sat down and said, <clears throat> You know what's going to happen. Let's deal with it now and decide if this is what I should be doing because even though I feel called to do this, um, I know our family and our lives are going to be different. So let's, let's consider the differences that will happen. Let's consider how the family dynamic may change and then come to a conclusion. Are we being called to do this or... Is this something I have to watch on the sidelines? And, of course, you know how that turned out. So um, I think it's very important. Not everybody is called for this type of role today in the Catholic Church. Um, We are one foot in and one foot out. You know, we're valid, but we're not licit. So we're not totally in, but yet... um, were not unbelievable to many. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, the, the people who attend your liturgies, and, and if you could answer this quickly, because we are uh, coming close to the end, uh, but you get men and women who come to your liturgies. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, it, is it conceivable that at some point you will ordain a man? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm. It, they have to be... No, it, I could I could ordain a man if they are you know um, come uh, qualified. Uh, also, they would have to understand the women priest movement and believe in our mission and vision, and be willing to dedicate their ministri- ministerial lives to that. Um, and we have in the association we have three such men right now. Okay, so we have ordained men uh, in our movement. But, again, they have to realize that um, they are pushing women. And um, in order to be inclusive, we have to look inclusive, don't we? I Indeed. mean, we have, to, we have to walk the talk. So it would be wrong for us to say we believe in an inclusive church, but yet men aren't allowed. No, I'm sorry. We're, we're not like that, and we would never be that way. And I appreciate that. Mary Eileen, we're out of time right now, but I want to thank you so much for your time today and last week as well. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Fred. It was my honor to um, to discuss this with you. Yes. You've been listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Mary Eileen Collingwood has been my guest today. She is a bishop at the community of St. Bridget and Inclusive Catholic Community in Brecksville, Ohio. Please join us again next week here on Common Threads.
Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.